I await the cyclone. Finally, if this is the hour and I am called, I will respond, present, like all the others. Excerpt from a letter written by Lieutenant Colonel Emile Drion, Bois de Corps, Verdun, January 1916. Welcome to the Battle of Verdun podcast, episode 2, Judgment on the Meuse. Getting right into episode 2, I need to start off with a correction pointed out by listener and mon bonhomme, Gunna from Boston, who knows his French. In the last episode, I pronounced the town as Charleroi, but it is actually pronounced Charlevoix. So let me pronounce that again to make sure that we have it right. Charlewa. Charlewa. Charley. All right, I'll stop. When we left off at the end of episode one, we had covered the first two years of bloody and stalemated fighting on the Western Front of the First World War. The opening battles of 1914 had led to an exhausted stalemate that neither the Allies nor the Central Powers could break anywhere in the world through 1915. This was particularly true on the Western Front in France and Belgium, where all of the battles saw territorial gains measured in hundreds of meters or in single-digit kilometer shifts in the front lines while casualties ran into the hundreds of thousands. In 1915, Imperial Germany's Chief of Staff, General Erich von Falkenhayn, conspired to break the deadlock in France by drawing the French army into a battle that would be focused solely on killing Frenchmen. The designated target for this attack was the Verdun salient, which French soldiers had held around their sacred city since the autumn of 1914. Through the autumn of 1915, the German 5th Army, on the other side of the bulge, built up massive quantities of artillery and men with which to shatter and then assault the French positions in anticipation of Operation Gericht, or Judgment. A map of the Verdun salient is readily available on this podcast accompanying website, battleofverdunpodcast.com. In January, the buildup continued at an ever greater pace on the German side. French army leadership finally recognized the impending danger and began to desperately build defenses against the impending attack, which was set for February 12th, 1916. February 12th, 1916. Until a snowstorm suddenly blew in and put a hold on the Germans' plans for the next nine days. Yes, it did. The Meuse region is given to bad storms and stretches of gloomy weather, and this was to be one of those stretches. The storm immediately halted all German plans for the attack. Every day, the dawn came to reveal that the billowing snow, cold, and winds were still there and going at the same strength as the day before. Every day, the crown prince put his flooded Stalin-bound assault troops on alert only to later rescind the order. This was repeated to the point where one of those assault troops 
sitting in knee-deep, freezing water, noted, if the bad weather continues, the battle will take place indoors. Man, I love soldiers and their particular brand of sarcasm. The miserable conditions kept on day in and out until the storm tapered off between February 19th and the 20th. Crown Prince issued his attack orders again to be carried out on February 21st. This thing needed to get going, as the French already knew it was coming, and what element of surprise was left was steadily dwindling away. The 21st of February was forecasted as being clear of any further bad weather. Around 4 a.m. on the 21st, the Germans began with ranging shots all across the salient. In Verdun itself, a 380mm shell, that's a big one even by World War I standards, slammed into the bishop's palace, more proof to French propagandists that the Germans were just godless Huns. Steady bombardment began to rain down on French rear areas. At 7 a.m., the hurricane came. Suddenly, all 1,200 German guns opened up on the French front line. The wooded areas behind the German lines were one sheet of flame as thousands of shells left their guns and screamed their way towards French trenches. Within minutes, the bombardment could be felt as a steady rumbling over 150 kilometers away. The entire French salient came under a murderous artillery fire. The forts were pounded. Crossroads and known supply depots were plastered. Up on the front line, the meager French trenches were blown apart and then churned continuously as thousands of shells landed on top of them. The men in those trenches suffered the same fate. To the Germans, the French attacks of 1915 had failed because the French attacked on too wide a front, thus leaving them without enough depth to fully saturate a target and kill everything within a certain area. The Germans wouldn't make that mistake. This was part of von Falkenhayn's strategy in keeping the attack to the right bank of the salient only, as well as his other hang-ups discussed in the previous episode. The right bank took an especially heavy pounding. 850 guns launched shell after shell after shell at the Poilus, manning the lines there. Poilus means hairy ones and was the preferred nickname of French soldiers for World War I. The roar of the bombardment was unbearable. On the ground, the air became unbreathable as smoke, pieces of trees, pieces of men, earth, and snow flew everywhere. Lieutenant Colonel Emile Drian and his men of the 56th and 59th Chasseurs à Pied were in the worst of it at the Bois des Corps, at the very tip of the Verdun salient on the right bank. The colonel himself arrived at his command bunker just in time to watch the forest literally disintegrate before his eyes. You remember Lieutenant Colonel Driant from last episode? This upstart little colonel, this nobody serving back then in a backwards corner of the Western Front and clanging a most unwelcome alarm bell about how the French army was unprepared to meet any serious attack on Verdun? Who was this guy? By all accounts, Lieutenant Colonel Emile Driant was a good commander. On February 21st, 1916, he was 61 and in command of two battalions of Chasseurs à Pied, the French designation for light infantry. Driant had had a long career in the French army until he retired at the age of 50. 
From there, he went into local politics as a deputy for Nancy for a few years, and he wrote Tom Clancy-esque novels of wars set in the not-too-distant future. Driant used these novels to voice his right-leaning feelings that France's Third Republic was a decadent and corrupt country that needed to get its military in gear for the next war. He was on the outer edges of right-wing groups during many of his political and military years. When the war broke out in 1914, Drian got himself right back into the army. In autumn of 1915, he was transferred from an unpleasant staff job in the Verdun garrison to command of the 56th and 59th Chasseurs à Pied at the very tip of the Verdun salient in the Bois des Corps some 10 kilometers directly north of Verdun where he now found himself hunkering down for dear life. Here he had found a unit of veteran fighters gone soft sitting in this quiet sector, and he had immediately jumped into the task of getting them back into combat-ready shape. Dreyant was a tough but fair commander. He did the best he could to take care of his troops, in marked contrast to many other French army officers of the day. He set his men to work fixing the dilapidated defenses in his section of the line. Rather than just have his men dig trenches, he had them build a more elastic system of defense in depth by setting up three lines in the Bois de Corps. The first line, the closest to the Germans, consisted of concrete strongpoints connected by trenches in the forest. A second line of trenches provided support, and behind that, a third line repeating the pillbox and trench system of the first line. It was the best Driant would be able to do with the resources he had at hand. Driant's efforts weren't alone. With the increased scrutiny of the salient's defenses, Driant's fellow officers and men were also at work desperately trying to improve the defenses. But his system was ahead of contemporary thinking as the three defense lines anticipated an elastic approach to defense that would bog down any attacking German force. So now, back to the Bois de Corps. The Bois de Corps was, was, a patch of woods measuring about 1,300 by 800 meters. Over the next eight hours, it and the soldiers in it would convulse under the weight of 80,000 artillery shells. This was repeated everywhere else on the right bank of the Verdun line. French lines on the left bank caught only slightly less. Under the weight of this kind of bombardment, very little could survive. On hearing the first shells coming in that morning, men hit the bottom of their trenches and flattened themselves as the world around them exploded. Eyes, noses, ears, brains hurt from the concussion of constantly impacting artillery rounds. Trees were torn in half and uprooted to land and be blasted and thrown up again. The ground shook violently as showers of earth flew up and crashed back down. Dugouts blew in, burying alive any of the terrified men inside. Direct hits blew men literally to pieces, scattering body parts and gore amongst the churning trees, dirt, and melting snow. Battle of Verdun was to be primarily an artillery battle. It showed its dominant feature right from the first day. What could it possibly be like to be under this type of bombardment? One of the most powerful descriptions I've come across 
come from an excerpt from Corporal Mark Stefan's memoir, as quoted in Ian Ousby's excellent book, The Road to Verdun. Stefan was a 46-year-old corporal in Dreyant's battalions who was in the front line at Bois de Corps on the 21st. He wrote, Imagine, if you can, a storm, a tempest, growing steadily worse, in which the rain consists entirely of cobblestones, in which the hail is made up entirely of masonry blocks. Remember that a mere 120 at the point of impact has gathered the same energy and releases, just as instantaneously, the same destructive force as an express train hitting the buffers at 90 kilometers an hour. And we're underneath it, you follow? Underneath it, as quiet as Baptists, smoking our pipes, waiting from moment to moment for the inevitable, fatal moment when our wretched carcasses are going to be squashed, flattened, ground instantly into dust. The barrage went on for eight hours. For eight hours, Poilus lay under it. It was said that of every five Frenchmen that day, two were buried alive, two were wounded, and the fifth was waiting. Some guys simply went nuts. They'd suddenly get up in the middle of it all and walk off to be blown to bits or found shuffling around like the walking dead later on. Finally, around 4 p.m., the bombardment lifted. To the dazed but veteran survivors in the Bois de Corps and everywhere else in the shattered front line, a sudden silence meant that now the enemy's infantry attack was coming. Small, isolated groups of surviving Biffins, another nickname for French troops, many of whom were wounded, pulled together what weapons were still functioning and got ready to face whatever was coming at them in the dying sunlight of that winter afternoon. Lieutenant Colonel Drian had begun the day with 1,300 soldiers. By 4 p.m. he had maybe 300 or 400 left. By the measure of any army, his battalions were already effectively wiped out. Nevertheless, Drian and his troops knew what they had to do. One dies at one's post, he had written a few days earlier. This is where Lieutenant Colonel Emile Drian goes from man to myth. Across no man's lands were 10,000 Germans from General von Schen's 18th Army Corps whose objective was the capture of the Bois de Corps. Spearheading them were elite Sturmtruppen and pioneers wielding a horrifying new weapon, the Flammenwerfer, or flamethrower. These troops would move forward in squad or platoon-sized formations using newly developed fire and maneuver tactics rather than the shoulder-to-shoulder massed infantry attacks that were more common. For stormtroopers, those first patrols advancing into what was left of the French front line didn't really do much storming. It was as if they were channeling General von Falkenhayn's reservations by moving forward cautiously and carefully. A lot of it had to do with the terrain itself. In places like the Bois de Corps, it was just physically difficult to walk or step over the shattered trees, shell holes, and the dead and dying that were everywhere. But they did expect to literally just walk over the French front line, having been told by their commanders that the bombardment would kill 
everything. They were thus surprised when Dreyant's chasseurs à pied put up a nasty resistance as soon as they made contact with the stormtroops. Rifle and machine gun fire punched into the advancing Germans. Where there were no rifles or machine guns left, the French used pistols and hand grenades, weapons more preferred for trench fighting. The Germans were forced to halt and root out defending pockets of Dreyant's men, and the searing jet of flame from the flamethrowers was a terrifying sight to those Frenchmen on the receiving end of that weapon. Ironically, a mass infantry assault might have worked in overrunning Dreyant and his men that evening over an assault by Sturmtruppen. Along other points on the right bank, the Germans were moving cautiously, but they were moving forward. Decimated French units were giving ground, dying to the last man in some areas, breaking and running in others, and surrendering in yet others. At the Bois de Corps, though, Lieutenant Colonel Driant was everywhere, directing fires on the enemy and coordinating his remaining men as best he could. The 56th and 59th Chasseurs fought doggedly. As night fell, some groups of Poilus even counterattacked and retook positions just taken by the Germans. This was not what the men of the Crown Prince's 5th Army had expected. Next morning, the Germans blasted Dreyant's men again with an artillery barrage that rivaled that of the day before. This time it lasted for five hours before it lifted and the Germans attacked again. Lieutenant Colonel Dreyant was once more right out in the open, exposed to enemy fire and directing his men on how to silence it. When told to take cover, he yelled out, you know they've never hit me yet. Which makes me think of Driant as a total B-A-M-F. Do a Google search on that if you need to. This second go-around, though, luck and time were running out for Driant and his troops. The colonel saw that he was no longer just being attacked from his front, but also from his flanks and even his rear. The French positions at bois d'Aumont on his left had collapsed, and to his right, the Bois de Ville must also have been overrun. His own first and second lines caved in, pushing Driant and his troops to their third and last line. At this point, contrary to his previous die-in-place orders, he decided to save his few remaining men and get them out to another position to the rear of the Bois de Corps. The men were divided into three groups, each picking its own way out of the ruined wood. But the Germans were all over them. Dreyon himself jumped from shell hole to shell hole as he worked his way out. When he paused to help a wounded soldier, he was hit and killed instantly. Few of his men made it out of the Bois de Corps. The wood fell on February 22nd. Quick aside here. World War I was a modern and frequently pitiless war fought at what is considered the dawn of the modern age. There were many instances of an old-school chivalry that came up time and again across the various battlefields. Signs that the old ways of the world still held some sway in this new, terrible one being birthed. Lieutenant Colonel Driant's body was discovered by a German officer shortly after the capture of the Bois de Corps. Driant was buried, and his personal effects were sent back to that officer's wife in Germany. The officer's wife then had the late colonel's things sent to the now-widowed Miss Driant in France through a courier in neutral Switzerland. It's amazing 
that a man would take the time to send back his enemy's things so his family could have them. Lieutenant Colonel Stand at the Bois de Corps had caused the Germans some delay, and more importantly, it caused them to slow down their already cautious advance. German casualties weren't too bad at this point, but the largest share of them were amongst the stormtroops, of which there was a limited number available. The 56th and 59th Chasseur à Pied had performed a magnificent stand that served to gum up German plans for a full day. Despite the delay, the Germans overran the French first line positions on the right bank between the 21st and the 23rd of February. French units put up a scattered and confused resistance, having lost all contact with their commanders to the rear of the front. In turn, orders given from the rear either never made it forward, as human runners were killed trying to run the artillery gauntlet, or arrived too late and already out of date. Along the river Meuse, the French abandoned the village of Brabant. Then they turned around and wasted French lives trying to retake it. To the right of the Bois Herbe Bois, the Poilus held their only remaining part of the first line until they were burned out by flamethrowers. To the immediate south of the Bois de Corps, on a hilltop village named Beaumont, the Germans resorted to wave infantry attacks and were mown down ruthlessly by the beleaguered French defenders until they too were overtaken. And between these points, the units fought while others broke down and ran. At a bend of the Meuse, south of Brabant village, was another village named Samogneau. The Germans advanced on the village on the 23rd. The Frenchmen holding the village had their orders. Hold the village, coûte que coûte, whatever the cost. Heavy fighting broke out as the defenders found themselves trapped by the Germans. French stragglers coming out of the village fled south, telling everyone they encountered that Samogneau had fallen. So French artillery, or what was left of it at this point, then plastered Samogneau with a devastatingly accurate barrage. Only they tore apart their own countrymen. When the bombardment was over, the Germans took the opportunity they'd been handed and overran the village. It was a disaster. The mill on the Meuse, the nickname German troops would give to the Battle of Verdun, was already getting to work. Artillery slammed into French trenches, gun emplacements, and rear areas almost ceaselessly. Germans pressed the front line two kilometers closer to Verdun in two days. For World War I, that wasn't too bad. But the French nevertheless sent in counterattack after counterattack, no matter how small and mostly ineffectual. A position would be lost, with the defending French battalion reduced to a platoon of shell-shocked survivors. These guys would be ordered to immediately counterattack. Sometimes, their audacity won them gains totally out of proportion to their size. More frequently, these small unit attacks wiped themselves out. If and when the French retook a corpse-choked line of trenches, the ever smaller number of survivors would wait for the inevitable German counter-counterattack. So the mill began to grind, consuming human flesh at an ever-growing rate. Within the first three days of the battle, the French 51st and 72nd Divisions, those units holding the right bank from the Meuse itself to about the area of the village of Orne, lost 16,000 of 26,000 men 
Germans weren't that far behind in casualties. By the 23rd, French morale and resistance began coming apart. Units were disappearing. Many were decimated. Others disintegrated in the face of the artillery and attack onslaught. On February 24th, the French army pulled back to its newly dug and inadequate second defense line. The situation was confusing, and the morale of the Poilus was not high. They were getting chopped up by the enemy's artillery, while their own guns were either silent or blowing up their own men. And through all of this, the Germans kept right on pushing. Then it happened. Breakthrough. Same day the French pulled back to the second line, the Germans hit it and poured over it within a few hours. A frontline trace of the French on the right bank at this point would scratch out a line going roughly from the Côte de Talou hill directly to the south of the German-occupied Saint-Magnon village, east to the hilltop village of Louvemont, and snaking further east to the village of Bézonvaux. The French 30th Corps that had been in the fight since the 21st had now pretty much ceased to exist. There were gaping holes in the French line, and the French 20th Corps was being thrown in everywhere to plug those holes. Nicknamed the Iron Corps, the 20th Corps had been commanded by the dashing General Ferdinand Foch and had a solid combat reputation. So much for that reputation, though. The Germans tore them up and kept grinding forward. That's how it was at Verdun. By the end of the 24th, the Germans had taken more ground in one day than they had taken in the three previous days of hellish fighting. French units could only put up a weak resistance. Wounded and retreating Poilus struggled back to the rear, babbling that there were whole areas of the battlefield literally empty of French soldiers. It seemed nothing could stop the Germans, except their own caution. Because the Germans, worn down by four days of unexpectedly heavy fighting, were now becoming ever more cautious. They were not quite ready for the resistance Franz had put up in the nightmare forests and shattered villages, even if he was being constantly beaten back. So they moved forward steadily, but carefully. This caution was really too bad. It seems like not too many people at the time noticed it, but on the 23rd and 24th of February, the Germans and French were out of their trenches and fighting out in the open landscape of dead trees, dead villages, and dead bodies. But the war of movement was actually back. French defenses were unraveling. It got even worse on the 25th when the Germans pushed the French back even more, taking Côte de Talot Hill, Louvement, Bézonvaux, and Hardomont village south of Bézonvaux. The front line was now at the mighty Fort Douaumont itself, centering on the linchpin of the line of forts. It meant the German army was only some seven kilometers away from Verdun. With the battle lines now at the Verdun forts, the situation was becoming critical for the French army. But the forts themselves could provide only a very limited amount of support to the troops outside them due to the relentless requisitioning of heavy guns the previous year. Witness the case of Fort Douaumont itself. After the fall of the Belgian forts at Liège and Namur, Douaumont became the strongest fortress in Europe. It sat like a mammoth and half-buried turtle 
with its imposing hump dominating much of the battlefield. But with the French army's mindset of the offensive at all costs and the necessity of grinding trench warfare, forts like Douaumont were an expensive relic. With the failure of the Belgian forts to hold and the need for heavy guns, stripping the Verdun forts pretty much made sense to everyone. So the majority of its guns were removed, leaving Douaumont a defanged and declawed tiger. Its potential garrison of 1,000 men stood at 56, all of them territorial soldiers in their 50s or 60s. For you Americans out there listening, territorials back then were really old reservists who did rear echelon jobs in order to free up younger guys for the actual fighting. So one of the linchpins of the Verdun defenses, with Verdun a focal point of French defense on the Western Front, was essentially undefended. And now the Germans were right up against it. The German unit with Fort Douaumont in its sector was the 24th Brandenburg Infantry, a famed regiment with a history going back to at least the Napoleonic Wars. In the bad weather of the 25th, a small unit of German pioneers, led by a Sergeant Kunze, approached the fort as shells fell all around it and on it. Kunze and his men noticed that all of the fort's observation posts had to be empty, otherwise they should all have been machine gunned down by now. Sergeant Kunze and his men cut through the wire and approached an opening in the fort's battered wall. Kunze ordered his men in, but they refused. They thought this was all a setup for a French ambush once they got inside. So the good sergeant went in by himself, because in case you didn't know, that's what NCOs do. They lead the way. The fort was empty inside. Kunz walked around until he found the majority of those 56 territorials huddling in the lower levels and took them all prisoner. He also stopped to help himself to one of his prisoner's lunches which had already been laid out at a table when Kunze showed up. A little bit later, a Lieutenant Radke and his men moved in on the fort as well. The young lieutenant was having a hard time trying to figure out a way over the iron rail fence surrounding the fort when one of his own artillery shells blew him over that fence, solving his problem for him and no doubt eliciting several comments to the effect of, Man, you are one lucky mother. Radke then linked up with Kunze and his troops, further securing the fort. Then came a Captain Haupt and Oberleutnant von Brandis and some more troops with them. Von Brandis would shortly get and very much bask in the credit and glory of capturing Fort Douaumont, false as that would be. But there it was. Fort Douaumont had fallen to the Germans without a shot being fired in its defense. This was an almost unparalleled victory for the German army, and the next day church bells rang all over Germany in celebration. Units of the Crown Prince's 5th Army began to uncase their regimental flags in anticipation of the victory parade through Verdun. At first, the French didn't really grasp the enormity of the disaster they'd just been dealt. Again, the forts were considered outmoded, if not useless, relics. With the Belgian forts having been blasted open in 1914, this opinion had only hardened. It was part of the reason why the French upper command didn't worry too much 
about stripping the Verdun forts of most of their guns, the other part being the previously discussed necessity for those heavy guns. At the beleaguered General Hare's headquarters, he was a French commander who would be pointed at if anyone asked, who's in charge here? Staff put out a very military-sounding communique that what had actually been taken by the Germans was an advanced element of the former Verdun fort system so that it made Duamont sound like it was as important as a bunker. The French understood just how bad it was in about a day. Equaling the chaos of the battlefield was the French headquarters at Dugny to the south of Verdun. The German breakthrough on the 24th and the loss of Fort Duamont, General Hare started pleading with General Joffre to withdraw all French forces from the right bank of the Verdun salient. In response, Joffre grudgingly sent his chief of staff and potential rival, General Noël Marie Joseph Edouard, Vicomte de Courrier de Castelnau, up to see if it was as bad as everyone was saying. Joffre, being the tough and inspiring commander he was, instructed de Castelnau to do what he needed to do, but he did it in language vague enough so that blame for any potential disasters could be blamed on the chief of staff and not Joffre himself. So de Castelnau took off with his military power of attorney from Joffre to act as he saw fit. Before he left, he had gotten the approval to transfer the French 2nd Army, then in reserves, to Verdun to take over command of the battle. De Castelnau, nicknamed the Fighting Friar, because he kept a Catholic priest with him in his entourage, and that guy was his nephew. De Castelnau was a tough little guy who came from a long and noble line of French generals. Although he was considered the quote-unquote high priest of the French army's offensive à outrance doctrine, he was nevertheless a fairly flexible and adaptive commander who was an inspiration to others around him by his presence alone. It's like he was a bottle of condensed awesome. He was energetic and magnetic. General de Castelnau shows up on the Verdun battlefield for only two or three days, and he made only two major calls as a commander. But these two orders would have major consequences, as we will see. The first order was to get 2nd Army moving to take over the defense at Verdun. His second order was given after he arrived at Verdun. He came to General Hare's headquarters and was met by mass panic and pandemonium. I imagine him standing in the middle of it all, watching men and papers flying everywhere with no one quite knowing what the hell was going on. On his way to Hare's HQ, de Castelnau had already telephoned him and instructed him not to give up any more ground. Now that he was here, de Castelnau began to lay down the law. In short order, wherever he went, he left men focused and working towards the goal of defending Verdun. De Castelnau put the various pieces together, such as he could find, and found that while the situation was bad, things could be turned around. So on February 25th, right around the time Sergeant Kunza was entering Fort Duomont, de Castelnau gave his second order. There would be 
no retreat. Verdun was to be held. At all costs, of course. Even if he'd wanted differently, de Castelnau knew there could be no other way with his French army. With de Castelnau's order to hold and the loss of Fort Douaumont coming back to back, the officers and men of the French army very quickly grasped the significance of the battle now. It was a do-or-die struggle with Germany. It was Gericht, the judgment. Verdun couldn't fall now. They had to hold their ground. The rest of France would soon understand the same. Von Falkenhayn now had them right where he wanted them. On February 26th, the command group of the French 2nd Army arrived at Verdun, setting up shop at Suilly Village along the main supply route leading into the town. Commanding the 2nd Army was one General Henri-Philippe Benoni Omer Petain. With the disgraced hair relegated to a quickly fading advisory position, Petain now took over the battle. The effect of de Castelnau's orders and Petain's takeover were immediate. French resistance stiffened. Still, huge gaps were in the French line. The crown prince, that playboy player who'd been born with a silver spoon in his mouth, recognized the opportunity for what it was. He called on von Falkenhayn to bring up reserve troops in order to exploit these gaps while they were still there. Now was the moment for the German 5th Army to smash through and take Verdun, just like he had planned. Verdun, maybe they could even keep going and get this war moving again and be done with these trenches. But Prince Wilhelm's 5th Army had only one regiment of men in reserve. In this fight, those numbers simply weren't enough. Little Willie needed division-sized elements to make that breakthrough work. And this is where the disparity in the orders issued by the crown prince to his men and in those he had received from von Falkenhayn raised its ugly head and showed just how dangerous the lack of clarity was. On the request for reserves to be moved forward, von Falkenhayn refused. Reserve units opposite the British in the Somme area stayed where they were, as usual in fearful anticipation of an Allied counterattack. Two other divisions sat waiting two days' march away at Metz, but von Falkenhayn wouldn't release these units either. He wanted the French completely in his trap so he could start bleeding them out as planned. Even if he had released those two divisions at Metz to the Crown Prince, they were too far away to exploit any breakthrough. It was the golden opportunity that would not present itself again. If the holes torn in the French Army's right bank defenses had been used for a push through to the open ground beyond the hills, who knows what that could have done for the course of the war and for Germany's fortunes in it. Von Falkenhayn's obstinacy and his adherence to his murky plans gave just enough time for the French to throw more poilus into the line and mine those gaps. French resistance hardened in a day to the point where on February 27th, the Germans slammed into a wall. Desperate fighting developed around Douaumont village, just to the northwest of the fort itself. Nowhere on the front line were any advances, any gains of shell-cratered ground, 
made that day by the Germans. Then, on the 28th, Mother Nature came in and gave the French an assist for the second time that month. Temperatures went above freezing. The ground that had been churned up for a solid week now by artillery turned into mud. It hampered delivery of supplies to the French via La Route, the one road left open from Bar-le-Duc to Verdun, but it was harder on the Germans. Crown Prince's men were unable to move their guns forward over the destroyed landscape to support their infantry. The Germans had advanced four miles, in some areas up to six miles, putting forward German positions at the very limit of their artillery's ranges. It was becoming a not uncommon experience for the Germans to also get shelled by their own guns, many of which, after a week of continuous firing, saw their barrels worn out and their performance severely affected. Essentially, by the end of February 28th, all German attacks on the right bank stalled in the face of the stiffened French defense. From our standpoint, this was the point where the Crown Prince's drive on Verdun was finished, or it should have been. With General Pétain in charge on the French side, there came a new focus on the performance of French artillery. Within hours of his takeover, surviving French artillery was organized into a more coherent defense. The Germans noticed right away. French guns positioned on the left bank of the salient swung right and opened fire. German troops on the right bank were caught in the open time and again by the French guns targeting their exposed right flank. Units were massacred just trying to move through the battlefield. French gunners got proactive and went searching for targets too, not just pounding the ones presented to them. One German unit lost more men sitting in the woods than when it did when they finally pushed off for an assault. Verdun was an artillery battle pitting flesh and bone up against iron and steel. The mill on the Meuse was going into production stage now, and death had placed a mighty big order. With the fall of Fort Douaumont and General Pétain's taking command of French efforts, the first part of the Battle of Verdun was over. By February 28th, the Germans had failed to take Verdun as envisioned by the Crown Prince's battle plans, showing that the Germans even with their tactical and technical innovations, were also unable to break the trench deadlock on the Western Front. The French had taken some staggering blows, but were now back in the ring and fighting with a new determination, and not a little desperation. To General von Falkenhayn, though, the battle was going how he wanted it to. The French army was now resolutely determined to hold Verdun they were throwing men recklessly into the furnace to do so, just like he had said they would. What von Falkenhayn either didn't realize or wasn't particularly bothered by was that to get the French to step into the trap, he'd put the German army out as bait. Now both armies were in the trap. France was going to hold the line and work to recapture all lost ground. And Germany wasn't about to give up any ground it had just taken. By February 28th, the French had already taken some 24,000 casualties. Not unexpected, as attackers typically suffer higher losses, but nonetheless telling for Verdun. In the same time frame, 
the Germans took 25,000 casualties. Control of the battle's momentum was already slipping. Both sides were in it for keeps now. Gut get gut, as so many French orders would say over the next nine months. Whatever the cost. The French 2nd Army was firming up the front line and its artillery was punishing the Germans mercilessly from their positions across the Meuse. The Germans were already turning their field glasses on the left bank, having known all along they would have to clear French positions there in order to take the right bank. So the battle was entering its second phase, spreading its reach. The soldiers and generals would fight it, but they would be almost helpless to stop it. Next time, we'll move right into the second part of the battle as the Germans focus their efforts on now clearing the left bank of the salient in order to secure the right. The Germans would find this was to be a task that would just get bigger and bigger. With the expansion of the battle, the maw of the mill grew wider as both sides sent more and more men into it. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll be here next time for the next episode, which I'm going to put out there in two weeks' time. As always, your comments and reviews are welcome both on the website battleoverdonepodcast.com and through iTunes. I really look forward to hearing what you folks out there think. See you folks again soon. Take care.